1: Which benefits not only lawyers and their clients, but everyone. And moves us closer to the goal of access to justice for all. Tune in every month as we explore the new legal technology and the people behind the tech here on Law Technology Now. Monica Bay. Welcome to Law Technology Now. We have a great guest today who I've known for quite a while, Mark Cohen. And uh, one of the things about Mark and I is that we both have great stories about rock and roll. So we may even get into that a little bit. But first, I want to ask Mark to tell us a little bit about his background and how he got involved and started Legal Mosaic. And then we'll go from there.
0: Uh, Great to be with you, Monica. So uh, I was in my prior life a civil trial lawyer. Uh, I tried over 60 bet the company type cases representing Fortune 500 companies and five foreign sovereign governments, uh, not including our own when I was an assistant U.S. attorney. Uh, Early in my career, I did a stint as a partner at a large law firm, Finley-Cumble, Uh, known more for its uh, cataclysmic fall than its meteoric rise. Uh, But it was, in many ways, I think, the forerunner of today's um, international firm. And uh, they did a lot of things that were uh, in its day and perhaps still today rather cutting edge and very much precursors to what we're seeing today. I'm thinking specifically about uh, rating other firms for uh, at times top and at times overpaid talent. Uh, I then started a national boutique law firm. And um, when I had uh, put in about 28 or so years of uh, legal work and was in the happy position of not needing to uh, financially do it any longer, I decided that I wanted to uh, try my hand at something different. But uh, I learned quickly that Law is a little bit like the mafia in that you're never really completely um, let go and free. And so um, I found myself at lunch with Tom Friedman soon after he had done The World is Flat. I had been doing some business with a company that was prominently featured in a chapter in his book, hence uh, the opportunity to have lunch with him. And uh, we began to talk about uh, legal process outsourcing. Uh, which at that time didn't have the name. And uh, I asked whether uh, he thought that it might be uh, doable, and he said, well, why don't you try and let me know? So uh, I was one of the early legal process outsource movers and um, combining technology with document review in the Caribbean basin and in India. After that, I saw that um, that was just a part of the puzzle, and I felt that uh, actually more tasks uh, could be done differently than the way big law was doing it. And so with the uh, assistance of a friend of mine who was a Harvard Business School alum and also had uh, started a very large legal staffing company, so knew a bit about the legal industry, we decided that we were going to launch a company called Clearspire. Clearspire, sadly, I guess there's some parallels to Finley-Cumble, known better for, in some ways, its fall than its uh, rise. But uh, I'm very proud of a lot of the things that we did at Clearspire in terms of um, melding technology uh, with a new uh, law firm delivery structure.
1: And I'm going to stop you for a second because I want you to tell us a little bit more about what was that? I remember it when it came out, but... For some of our audience who may not be familiar at all, can you tell them, first of all, a little bit more about you mentioned the new approach to it. Can you give us a little bit more for the folks who might be brand new to this um, and then tell us a little bit more about how you built that company?
0: Sure. Well, for regulatory reasons, as you well know, Monica, we were uh, unable to combine the legal service uh, component of uh, ClearSpire with the law firm because the legal service company raised outside capital, although my partner and I put in a substantial portion of the Clearspire capital ourselves, but we could not, uh, as my partner was not a lawyer, we could not you know, finance the law firm that way. And so we had to create a two company model. This was the first time that such a two company model Uh, had ever been uh, constructed here in the United States, of course, if we had been across the pond in England, um, we would not have had to go through uh, those kinds of machinations uh, because the uh, alternative business structure allowed by the Legal Services Act of 2007 allowed uh, just the sort of thing that we wanted to do here in the states. So we engaged very much in a workaround, uh, regulatorily speaking. But um, we, we did actually, once uh, we got underway, uh, we did have clients across the globe. And I think the one enduring contribution of ClearSpire, besides the fact that we worked on a fixed price basis Um, Besides the fact that we allowed lawyers to work on a mostly remote basis without the need for expensive real estate. um, Besides the fact that um, we had just as many or more senior uh, level uh, female. uh, We didn't have partners, but we did have female uh, lawyers who were very senior in terms of their experience levels and input. These were all things that were pretty cutting edge, and we ended up uh, basically delivering the product not only on a fixed price basis, but at roughly 50% of the cost of uh, what it would be uh, for comparable service at a traditional large law firm. So basically, we were the first ones to uh, establish proof that uh, an alternative structure to the traditional law firm partnership, one that allowed people to work on a much more agile basis was viable and marketable.
1: So what happened that made it go away? Yeah, well, um, it's a combination of
0: things. We uh, basically had developed this uh, technology, the centerpiece of which was a um, a web-enabled platform called Coral, uh, C-O-R-A-L, like a coral reef that uh, enabled our lawyers basically to uh, have the platform operate as uh, their office, regardless of where they were around the globe. It enabled lawyers to uh, not only to work remotely, but also to capture uh, their work product and to share it with clients. We had three portals. We had a lawyer portal, we had a client portal, um, and then we had a public-facing portal. Um, to answer your question directly, what happened was we spun off the technology from the law firm and um, decided that we would you know, help uh, to relocate our lawyers uh, on the theory that really we were interested in trying to recapture the investment uh, as well as basically to um, uh, devote our attention to other things. Um, and that really is what led to uh, my creation of Legal Mosaic.
1: And tell us what Legal Mosaic is and what you're doing these days.
0: Well, Legal Mosaic is essentially two things. Um, It is a repository for um, the writing that I do and the speaking that I do and the privilege to talk to smart people like you, um, (laughs) as I'm doing right now. It is also a place uh, where a company that um, uh, enables me to take on interesting projects For uh, different uh, actors in the legal ecosystem um, and to uh, do consulting projects of different types uh, and sizes.
1: Going back to the other organization, if you had it to do over again, what would you have done differently?
0: I think that we would have, in terms of selling our legal services to the legal marketplace, Uh, we would have, as I had suggested uh, to my partner, we would have led not with the technology, but with the legal talent and the different structure that we use to deliver legal services. That would be one big difference. Another big difference is that we kind of had our uh, Waterloo in a conversation we had with the general counsel of Walmart Who asked us if we would consider um, providing staffing services as opposed to functioning for them as a law firm? Uh, One would think that when the general counsel of a company the size of Walmart um, asked that sort of loaded question, the obvious answer would be yes, especially when uh, it was prefaced by. A tremendous amount of praise for um, what we had done, as well as a great um, desire to uh, become a customer. Unfortunately, my partner and I, who, uh, as it turned out, did not always see eye to eye on big decisions, had a bit of an agreement. My theory was um, kind of ironic for the lawyer and the pair uh, was let's give the client uh, what they want. Uh, His was, uh, let's be true to, you know, the orthodoxy of our model to operate as a law firm, not as a staffing company. Um, And uh, so those are a couple of things, Monica, that in retrospect, um, we would have done, I would have done very differently.
1: And we'll get off this topic in a moment, but the American Bar Association has always been protective of lawyers. Uh, They would certainly say that themselves. I'm not saying anything that everybody doesn't already know. But the whole, and this is a complicated issue we could talk hours on, The whole difference between the um, in the organized bar of the mandatory bars like California and I think New York versus some of the states that do not require you to be in the bar association of the state. There's just been so much work historically about protecting the lawyers, much more so than protecting sometimes the clients. Did that whole um, arena of that. Was that part of what you were dealing with, with the whole, you know, who owns it kind of situation?
0: Yes. Um, Well, just as I guess um, in divorce law, there is the issue of whether or not, you know, certain funds were commingled. So, too, um, from the perspective of state bars, who, as you know, are the ones that, you know, determine the rules in a given jurisdiction. And then the ABA, kind of secondarily looking over things, yes, we were very, very careful to set up, as lawyers would say, juridically um, independent entities between Clearspire, uh, the service company, and Clearspire, the law firm. Um, they were both Clearspire companies, but we gave great care to ensure that uh, they were uh, kept separate and distinct with separate bank accounts, et cetera. So from that perspective, uh, Monica, um, we felt that we had created a structure that would allow us freely to operate in any state. I would just say, um, in terms of the ABA, and um, in answer to your prior question, which I'd like to come back to some of the other things I'm doing now, uh, I'm doing a piece that's going to come out in Forbes, uh, for whom I write a weekly column, as you know, Um, it's coming out this Sunday. It is on the ABA and it deals with some of these kinds of questions. And uh, I would just simply say that from my perspective, I think that uh, the ABA uh, would be wise, particularly in these times, to focus more on the profession and um, the public uh, rather than just their members. And I note that in terms of their mission statement, Um, they have a co-equal or they claim to have a co-equal interest in protecting the um, and advancing the interests of all three, not just their members. Unfortunately, I think, as you're suggesting, uh, particularly in states with voluntary bars, that is, you know, where people have to sort of opt in and pay their dues, uh, the ABA has um, very much taken a position of being more protective of lawyers uh, than, in my judgment, uh, they should be to the extent that um, they are failing to protect the larger profession and the public.
1: Well, that could take us on one of my favorite rants around, which I will only do very, very quickly, because it's a huge issue for me, which is 80% of Americans can neither find a lawyer or afford a lawyer in civil matters. And, you know, I'm I'm very, very uh, yakking all the time about the need to stop protecting the lawyers so much, start realizing that we are not meeting our requirements to be able to have everyday people be able to get lawyering work when they need it. But that would take us into many rants from me. And I think we're on the same uh, planet. What I will say, though, is there's a really interesting thing going on in, in Europe. And I think you hinted to it in the UK because in Zoom has actually bought, and I'm a huge advocate for LegalZoom, Avvo, and for Rocket Lawyer, because what they are trying to do to use tech and to be able to get the the dirty little secret of it is it's helping the lawyers as much as it is the folks who are looking for help, because small firm lawyers often could not even pay their own bill rates on it. So that's a real hot Period right now, and the ABA did a uh, a very very quick thing with Rocket Lawyer, and it was shut down almost immediately. Again, this could take a whole nother story.
0: Well, um, if if I may, though, Monica, just a couple yeah. quick things. One, you know, as we both know, you're adverting to the so-called access to justice crisis, and yes. I would urge you to keep ranting on, as I will. Number two, uh, I too am a huge fan of Legal Zoom. Um, And not because they asked me to be the keynote speaker last May at their annual meeting, uh, but because I think that they are serving a very powerful and useful purpose. And to your point about uh, Beaumont Law, the conveyancing firm that they um, have just recently acquired uh, in England, it's interesting to note that uh, just this past week they launched an app that allows people to um, not only to prepare wills, uh, but also to update them periodically. Um, and I think that, you know, they are, in my mind, uh, the future of the law and uh, an organization which, notwithstanding nine separate unsuccessful attempts uh, by state bars to shut them down, are very much uh, the path to the future as they combine uh, technology uh, with new types of structures that uh, make legal services uh, much more accessible and cost effective.
1: And I completely agree with you. And I think that all of these folks have to start realizing that to stop having a moat, you know. And I have great respect for the American Bar Association. I was one of the first women to be a national officer in the law student division. I covered the bar for, well, I still do. Um, so I do understand some of the nuances of it, and I'm, but I do think that the ABA is, is particularly with their, their report that came out uh, about a year ago on access to justice. And there's a real problem with this, and then I'll get off the subject, which is the presidents come in and it's a ladder and each president is there for a year and they each one will have a special thing that they are doing. That's great. And the fellow who did a wonderful program that I think we both were at at Stanford uh, two years ago. But Once the year is over and the next president comes, poof, it's just gone. And they've got to figure out at the ABA a better way that if they're going to start these initiatives, that they have to be able to continue on. And that's a major problem, in my opinion, on this, because they'll have all these great conferences and then 10 minutes later, you know, it's, it's dead. So, And Monica,
0: just uh, obviously your ties to the ABA run a lot deeper than mine, Uh, but I would just say this, that uh, as you know, in 2014, the ABA uh, commissioned the Legal Futures uh, Group designed to sort of address, among other things, the access to justice crisis and the better uh, use of technology in driving more efficient legal services. Um, The good news is that they did it. The bad news is that in a 28-member commission, not a single member of that 28-person team had ever founded a legal tech company, managed a legal tech company, or otherwise been uh, involved with one. So I think that the ABA really has to cast a much wider net to include not just lawyers, but also others who are intimately involved now in the delivery of legal services.
1: I will be off that rant now and turn because we're running out of time. I'd love to have you talk a little bit more about what you see coming up in 2017. And one of the issues that I think we should at least briefly talk about is how corporate counsel is changing and how they are becoming much more aggressive in terms of not just saying yes to whatever lawyer pops in. I know there's two big groups that have been working on them. One of them is buying legal counsel. Um, and there is one in San Francisco, that one is in New York, and there's one in San Francisco, I think it's called Colo, you probably know it better than I. Yeah. Tell us a little bit, because I know you're involved in this, and I think it's very, very exciting. What's going on, and how are the general counsels changing the way it's worked for years and years and years?
0: Sure. Well, I'm going to try to tease out the multiple interesting questions that you posed, Monica and um, just give short form answers to each because uh, as you can appreciate, each one could basically take up an entire segment. First of all, in terms of what I see in 2017, I see, and this is based upon um, my participation working at uh, Georgetown Law School where I'm recently been given the title Distinguished Lecturer in Law, but what's really neater than the title is the fact that I am working with the dean and the vice dean to create so-called professional competency courses that do two things. One, to imbue students with some of the crucial skills necessary to practice law today, things like project management, things like a greater understanding of how technology is transforming Um, the delivery of legal services, and also equally to better make them market ready upon graduation. Um, I see that as a very interesting development at Georgetown. I see not many schools, but a few other schools now, you know, beginning to become much more aggressive in expanding their curricula uh, along these lines. So that's one thing that I see and hope will continue. Uh, I also am beginning to see a willingness on the part of different actors in the legal ecosystem uh, to collaborate in ways that they haven't done before. So for example, I'm thinking, and again, I don't need to expose too much of a bias on behalf of Georgetown, but Georgetown has the so-called DC affordable law firm uh, that they launched, which is a partnership between and among Georgetown a couple of large law firms, D.L.A. Piper and Aaron Fox, and also um, some corporate sponsors. And they are basically training some young uh, graduates to do um, the kind of work that is uh, you've adverted to, uh, that is responsive to uh, resolving the access to justice crisis, but on much, much, much more Cost-effective uh, bases than you know the traditional two to three hundred dollar an hour uh, fees that even solo practitioners now typically charge. Um, and and of course in major urban centers that, that those numbers tend to be even higher. So those are some of the exciting things that I see you know coming down the pike. In terms of in-house counsel, um, I think you know it's it's now pretty widely known that demand for law firm services has been relatively flat over the last three plus years, whereas demand for um, legal services generally has gone up fairly uh, steadily during that same period. And the question is then, uh, how do you explain the delta? And it's largely explained by two things. One is the growth of in-house legal departments in terms of size, influence. And market share in-house legal departments now comprise almost 45 percent of um, legal spend in the U.S. market, which is a marked, marked increase from what it was even five years ago.
1: I'm going to interrupt you because I just got a memo today on exactly this topic. Uh, HBR Consulting did their annual uh, department survey and It's exactly what you said. One of them was that the continued push to control outside council costs has only seen a 1% change, and that was an increase, uh, a modest increase in compensation, and that one, they said that the average increase in total compensation was 3.3. But the interesting one is the using technology to drive change. 39% of organizations are increasing their use of tech to handle increased legal demand. But this sort of blew me away, which is participants marked median technology spending at 153,171. To me, that's like five cents. If that's all they're spending on tech, they're doing something really, really wrong in my book.
0: I totally agree with that. Again, I think that what you're seeing is that, you know, sort of in the traditional partnership model, which is based entirely on hours build and rates yep. um, and where you have a pyramidal structure, that, of course, is Inherently, from the lawyer's perspective, inimical to the more efficient delivery of legal services by whatever means.
1: Yeah, because it's going to take money right out of their pocket. Why would a, right. why would a top senior person vote yes for tech? If it means that he or she is going to make significantly less money, so, I mean that that it's so built into the structure. Um, I love to say that I've been saying that the billable hour will be dead in five years. I've been saying that for seventeen years. You know, so I mean, I do think, and I'm curious what you think on this. I'm a really big believer in blow-ups and I think we're starting to see it I am very you know now I'm you know a fellow at Stanford in the Codex unit and so I'm drinking the kool-aid big time but when I see all these incredibly smart mostly young lawyers and coming up with these great startups I think we're gonna hit a point and I'm not going to say when or how, but I think it's coming faster than we think. Uh, I think it's really exponential. And I think that a lot more of big law, not as Eric Press always says, my former boss at ALM, the top part of the AMLA 100, they're not going anywhere. There's always going to be a need for them and from clients who don't care how big the check is. But for the AMLA 200 and and the smaller ones... It has to change because the math just doesn't work I mean that's I think we're on the same point on that, but i I just get so passionate about that because the bottom line is this can work for the lawyers and the clients, and they'll get more clients and they'll be better and you know you you, you and even with the self help ones, if you get in and you do you have a successful if as a client you have a successful situation with a small routine matter, you're going to go, wow, that lawyer was great. I want to come and have them do something else for me.
0: Uh, No, I completely agree with you. I think uh, with all due respect to Eric, who I think is one of the most thoughtful people in this arena, uh, I I think that probably it would be overly generous to say 100 firms in the AMLAW 200. In fact, I rarely hear people
1: say- Oh, no, top. I would say the top 20. I
0: would say the top twenty, and I think that the data is already, you know, sort of demonstrating a financial separation, if not a brand separation, uh, between the top twenty or so firms and everybody else. You know, it kind of reminds me, Monica, of and, and lawyers have such hubris to think that you know their industry, our industry. Is unique from everybody else. I remember when many years ago British medicine was socialized, but there remained a small cadre of so-called Harley Street physicians. These were, you know, sort of top top physicians uh, who, you know, uh, did differentiated procedures and handled the really really tough cases. And these were people who could continue, notwithstanding socialized medicine to operate outside of that system because what they did was of such great value to those uh, few who could afford their services. I think we're beginning to see the same in law. I think we're also beginning to see a lot of the urban myths uh, that law has done such a masterful job of perpetrating for so long, beginning to be exploded. Uh, For example, the fact that, you know, most of what lawyers in large firms do is so-called bespoke work um, that, you know, you can't possibly, particularly with regard to things like litigation, engage in fixed price uh, models or that technology cannot and should not um, turn what used to be legal services into legal products. And I think all of those things are collectively going to conspire, and more factors, uh, to bring about just what you and Eric are talking about.
1: Now, we're running out of time, so I have two things for you to, to go quickly on. One is, give us three predictions about the upcoming year of 2017. I can't believe it. And before we hang up, we have to tell our audience about our favorite rock and roll event. So, you're first.
0: Okay, sure. Uh, Well, three things, uh, predictions are one, um, that uh, my crystal ball, uh, to the extent that I had one, cracked about the time that I uh, co-founded ClearSpire. So I'm really not terribly good at prognosticating when things are going to happen, but considerably better at, you know, sort of whether they might. Um, And I think we're going to see an acceleration of a lot of the changes that we've been talking about during this uh, very enjoyable conversation. Number two, by way of a prediction, uh, I think what we are uh, going to see is that if the ABA does not really begin to step up and to become a more forceful, unified voice for the legal profession, especially at this time when, you know respect for the rule of law is fast eroding, um, it is going to be irrelevant and uh, marginalize itself and potentially the profession itself. And the third thing in terms of rock and roll, I don't know about an event. Because uh, my tastes, I guess, uh, if you listen to my daughters, are antediluvian. But um, uh, I, for inspiration, often watch uh, a 2005, I believe it was, reunion of Cream, who gave a series of concerts at Royal Albert Hall, um, where I've had the pleasure of being many times, but not for that particular concert. And here are three guys who were in there at the time at their 60s. Uh, Unfortunately, as you know, Jack Bruce, their brilliant bass player, died, and maybe a lot of people think that Ginger Baker, their drummer, should have. Um, But um, (laughs) in any event, um, they played just magnificently in their 60s. And uh, I guess the connection I draw between rock and roll and that is um, here we are, uh, a miracle to relate, in our 60s, but still, I think, have a lot of uh, fuel in the tank. And hopefully we'll be around to see um, a more vibrant legal profession that does a better job of, you know, servicing our entire population. And I would just to end on a high note, say that um, I think that this is really to touch on something you said, uh, the golden age of the legal entrepreneur. Um, And I think it's a fabulous time to be a young lawyer, provided that. Um, the young lawyer can marry his or her skills in uh, other areas uh, with a legal background, and I think uh, we're going to see more and more of that as time goes on.
1: Now, you forgot to mention your wonderful experience on the East Coast, rock and roll.
0: Oh, you're saying um, yes? I-, I was I was at Woodstock. Um, I have witnesses, uh, but unfortunately, or maybe fortunately. I have very little uh, uh, recollection of the particular <laughs> events, and that's probably the best evidence I can marshal for saying that I really was there.
1: Well, I'm sure you were, and my um, Hall of Fame was that I was at the last waltz in San Francisco, so we, we can certainly, both of us can look at the uh, movie and the music, so proves that we're there.
0: Rock on, Monica.
1: OK, so before I let you go, please tell for our listeners how they can reach you if they are, want to do so.
0: Sure. Uh, they can reach me by email at uh, Mark A. Cohen at Legal Mosaic. One word, L-E-G-A-L, mosaic, like something on a wall, M-O-S-A-I-C dot com or on Twitter at at Legal Mosaic.
1: Well, Mark Cohen, thank you very much for a very exciting conversation and we certainly will have you again.
0: Thanks for the invite, Monica.
1: I'm Monica Bay and thank you for listening.
0: information about what you've heard today please visit legaltalknetwork.com subscribe via itunes and rss find us on twitter and facebook or download our free legal talk network app in google play and itunes